Hey, hot cakes. Welcome to Hot Take. I'm Amy Westervelt. And I'm not Marianne Sagler. I'm Yesenia Funes. <laughs> I'm a director for Atmos Magazine. That's right. Mary's out this week, but we're thrilled to have Yesenia here co-hosting. And actually, kind of good timing because Mary just wrote something for you at Atmos. Yes, right, Yesenia? she did. So I've been trying to get Mary to write something for us for seemingly ever. <laughs> Finally, she came to me hoping to <laughs> elaborate on some essays that she wrote for the Hot Take newsletter, actually. Um, you know, dissecting fascism and the way climate denial, climate delay, climate extremism are all different manifestations of white supremacy. Yeah. And, you know, she looked at the way that this is contributing to the rise in violence, mass shootings. Um, I thought it was really powerful. Yeah. Our readers, uh, you know, maybe not so much, <laughs> but oh, really? uh, people always, yeah, people always get triggered. Did you get people complaining? People are like, they're like, what, why is this about race? You know, this sort of typical <sighs> response I think that you can expect from white people. <laughs> yes. Yes. But I, I know you and Mary have talked a lot about this, just like the explosion of ecofascism in the last few years. Um, and, you know, it's been freaking me out. Yeah. Um, but still, I can't get over how just normalized all this death is getting, especially, you know, when it's little ass kids, like little babies, it feels like the news cycle has just moved on, but I can't stop thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Totally the same. Um, Those kids were like in the same age group as my kids and I am still struggling dropping them off at school. It's really scary. It's, yeah. It's just, I don't know. It's sad. And it, it actually, like, before the Uvalde shooting, my husband and I had decided to leave the country because we got a notice that said, um, I mean, this wasn't the only reason, but it was, like, in a growing mountain of reasons. This was, like, the straw that <laughs> broke the camel's back. We got a, a notice from our kid's school that was, like, your child will have to participate in active shooter drills starting next year. And I was just, like... No, I can't do it. I can't do it. Because I feel like, I don't know, like, on top of the very real threat of something happening, I feel like conditioning kids to live in, like, constant fear is fucking sick. And it's fucking gross that, like, that's our solution. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. I feel you. You know, I don't have any kids. Yeah. No kids yet. I really Mm -hmm. want a bunch of babies. Like, it's very much something that I want. Mm -hmm. But I have my nephew. He just turned 13. He's, you know, in that cool, like, middle school age. Yeah. He's, like, wanting to walk home from school and go see his friends. And my niece, uh, she's turning seven. And I worry a lot about them. You know, there's mass shootings by these crazy-ass white dudes. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there's also just, like, regular gun violence, you know, shootouts in the hood. And I'm just, like, in this place where... I just wish all the guns could just disappear, you know? Like, why do we need guns to do it? I don't know. I just don't understand the need for guns and this obsession culturally that we have with guns. My niece said this thing to me yesterday, actually. She was just like, I don't want to think about all the stuff in the world anymore. She's like, it's just stressing me out. She's like, I don't want to think about anything. And I could just tell, like, she meant something in particular, but she didn't even want to say it. Mm. And it felt like she was trying to say something about, you know, the state of the world and gun violence and... It's overwhelming for these kids. They're too small to like process what's They shouldn't have to. On. That's the thing too. It's like they should be allowed 
to just have some phase of innocence, you know, where Definitely. where they don't have to worry about that stuff. And especially like you mentioned in, in cities, like in neighborhoods and cities, too. It's like, yeah, you 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 know, no one can like make the argument that they have those guns for hunting. <laughs> you know? Exactly. No. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, but but wait, Amy. Yeah. Where are you moving to? Unless it's a secret. I don't know if you can share. Uh, yes, I am. Um, I'm moving to Costa Rica. Actually, uh, my kids go to a public school here, and it has a Spanish immersion program, which is very cool. So they've been learning Spanish, and we've been wanting to kind of move somewhere where the language that people speak is Spanish, so that they can really kind of solidify it. And also, my husband and I have sort of varying competency in Spanish too. So when I was little, my dad spoke Spanish to me, but then he sort of stopped once my my brother and I got into like third or fourth grade and we um, came home from school and we're like, why do you talk to us in that language? And, and he just stopped like a punk. Um, and, yeah. Um, oh, no. Which I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. Why did you let a nine-year-old bully you? Um and then you grow up and you're like, why did exactly why did you let me stop you from teaching me? I know, exactly. So now I feel like I understand everything. But when I speak, I can't think of certain words and I get really tongue tied. So I'm like, this is perfect. It'll force me to to speak. And people in Costa Rica are like so used to um, everyone forcing them to speak English that when you speak Spanish, people are very, very supportive <laughs> and, and like helpful. I love that. I love that. As someone yeah. who grew up speaking Spanish, I can say like I still get tongue tied, even though it was arguably my first language. Because you're switching back and forth, right? It's hard <laughs> yeah. when your brain is trying to like do both things. I know. I know. It's so hard, especially if it's not just like basic casual conversation. Yeah. There are words that I have no idea how to say in Spanish. Right. That I know very well in English, like eggplant. Like I have no idea how to say eggplant in Spanish. It's like random ass stuff like that. Yeah. My boyfriend makes fun of me because he speaks really well. Like he learned Spanish grammatically and stuff. So yeah, he thinks it's funny when he hears me speak Spanish. Because he's just like, okay, that's so funny. (laughs) That's so funny. Uh, Yeah. So I'm excited about that. And I'm excited about, you know, I mean, this is like a a country that has actually implemented a lot of the climate policy that we talk about implementing here. And they actually like celebrate the day that they (laughs) they got really military to have like more money available for social services, which I also love. Um, And, you know, these are all the things that like people try to tell you are like terrible and scary and primitive and will like rocket us back in time a hundred years and are unrealistic and all these things. And I'm like, I don't know. People seem to have like a pretty good deal going there. So anyway, it'll be good to see it up close. I'm sure no place is utopia and there are lots of problems everywhere you go. So I'm sure that I will see plenty in Costa Rica too, but it'll be cool to see what those policies look like up close. Yeah. And it's going to be a whole new culture. That's going to be so exciting. Um, I'm really just kind of jealous of your ability to just go for it <laughs> and just say, I'm going to do this and just yeah. you know, uproot your life. It's, yeah. it's, it's strange because we hear a lot from, you know, here in the U.S., um, parents on the right, right, who don't want their kids exposed to certain kinds you know, of cultures. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, or like read certain kinds of books. Um, and yeah. really what they're trying to say is they don't want their kids to be, you know, 
gay or to be like a homie, to be someone who's down. Yeah. yeah. And you're just here concerned with keeping your kids safe. <laughs> like, right. those are the actual problems, right? Guns so, like the real basics of like keeping your kid alive. That's like biological imperative number one. Yes. It <laughs> seems know? like the bare minimum to not want your kids grow up scared of mass shootings. And so um, yeah. kudos to you. I think that's really brave. To, to do that you know it bums me out that any of us need to worry about this especially the kids yeah um but it reminds me a lot of climate change you know where the threat is so blatantly obvious and in our face yeah. and there's this very clear solution or several clear solutions mm-hmm. but a few powerful people are just blocking it yeah yeah and you hear the same excuses for why we're not implementing those solutions to right another thing that i've just been thinking about Recently, as we're getting ready to move, because it's like a bit of um, chaos and like a mountain of stress and logistics. So I'm trying to like, sp- like spend time thinking about the things that will be good. Once we move. <laughs> Find the bright lights. <laughs> yes. And one of them is like that, you know, Latin America is is taking this big swing to the left right now. And I'm excited to kind of watch that unfold up close. I saw Colombia just elected their first leftist president. Mm-hmm. Alongside is the first um, black vice president that they just elected to. Yes. She's supposed to be like a big social justice activist. Yes. And there's been similar shifts in shifts left in Chile, Panama. Yeah. So it's really interesting to watch Latin America swing left while the U.S., you know, just heads toward this authoritarianism, especially yeah. given like the history, right, of, of Latin America. And yeah. The, the sort of like dictatorships that have been also trying to take hold right. in America. Right. Yeah. Like it's I mean, I think the contrast between what you're seeing in some places and then what you're seeing in Brazil, for example, is really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, and I think, too, that like in some ways it makes me think about, you know, there was this big push in the U.S. after World War Two to really kind of demonize intellectuals and you know universities and things like that there was there's been all this like interesting documentation around just how scared companies in particular were about the fact that like Americans had gotten quite used to you know creeping socialism like the government actually doing stuff for them and like the government actually getting involved in even you know pricing and markets and stuff to make sure that like everyone had enough food and prices didn't go too out of control and all of that kind of stuff. And the the companies in the U.S. in particular were like, oh, shit, we really need to get a handle on this. And the oil companies in particular, this is like when they started to invest heavily in trying to shape what people were learning at universities. And you see a similar thing with American companies in particular in Latin America, really trying to crush the emergent intellectual left in both Latin America and the U.S. And so in some ways, I kind of, I don't know, I'm looking at this like, hmm, I wonder if, is this like a return to stuff that was happening pre-World War II? Is this like, mm. you know, um, I almost like a continuation of like what, maybe like where some of these countries would have been had the U.S. not been interfering um, all of those decades in a row, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. I mean, especially when you consider just like what the demographics could look like in terms of migration Mm -hmm. and stuff. Right. Like how Mm. many people were forced to flee Central America in particular after, you know, the U.S. imposed and like imposed. It's like um, rather not imposed, but provided assistance to like their militaries. And I'm thinking of El Salvador in particular. Yeah. Yeah. Now, like 
the current president of Salvador, like some people love him. Other people think that he's like veering toward dictatorship. And mm-hmm. yeah, Latin America is very, very strange. <laughs> well, and especially Latin American politics as it intersects with uh, oil politics. Right. Because like you've got all these oil rich countries there. A lot of American companies went in early days of oil colonialism and started to mess things up from that end as well. And then in Brazil, like, I don't know, we'll see what happens. I think it's entirely possible we could see Bolsonaro actually lose. But I talked to someone the other day who was like, well, you know, even if Bolsonaro goes, like, Bolsonaro is here to stay. And like, there's a significant number of people who really feel entitled to burn down large patches of the Amazon and and take over indigenous land. This was someone who is working with a bunch of indigenous groups. And she's like, yeah, I don't see I don't see that sense of entitlement going away with an election. It's like yeah. the Trump. It's like the Trump supporters. You yes. know, like they're they're not calming down one bit just because Trump's out of office. If anything, that rallied them up even more. The fact that he got removed. Exactly. If anything, I feel like Trumpism has only gotten stronger in recent years. So anyway, all of that is going on. And I feel like everywhere you look, you're kind of seeing this thing that you mentioned before about a few powerful people kind of making these big decisions for everybody else. You know, this week we have the January 6th hearings are ongoing. There's ongoing conversations about gun policy in the wake of Uvalde. And then some pretty apocalyptic drought and extreme weather happening all over the place in the U.S., outside the U.S., the South Asia heat wave is still happening. I feel like there were all these headlines a couple weeks ago or maybe a month ago that were like record heat in India and Pakistan. And everyone was talking about how horrific it was. And then it kept being horrific, but we just stopped hearing about it. For real, our media ecosystem is just it's just not equipped to handle the cascade of crises we face. It's just one thing after another, never ending. And yeah, I think that the media is just failing here. Yeah. But what do you think, Amy? Are you ready to get into it? Yep. It's time to talk about climate. That's coming up right after this break. Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors which is bad news because according to the EPA, indoor air could be two to five times more polluted than outdoor air. In some cases, it could be a hundred times more polluted. Data shows that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths around the world. I have a strange little problem in my neck of the woods, and that is that everybody likes to burn their garden trash and other trash too. Lots of trash burning going on in my neighborhood. Not great. Air Doctor has really, really helped. I just fire it up on days when I can tell everybody's lighting their trash fires, and it keeps the household air clean. Air Doctor is the air purifier that has captured the attention of established media outlets like CNN, Money, ABC, and more. Air Doctor filters out dangerous contaminants and allergens like pollen, pet dander, dust mites, and mold so your lungs don't have to. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. 
head to airdoctorpro.com and use the promo code DRILLED to get up to 39% off or up to $300 off depending on the model. Lock this special offer in by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use the promo code DRILLED. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, EarthBreeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, 40, 40%, 40%. Go to drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription earthbreeze.com slash drilled. Yesenia, one of the many reasons I was so excited that you could join me this week is that I feel like we're just seeing this enormous convergence of fascist authoritarian shit around trans rights just in the past month even in the past week i feel like every week it's more intense the laws in texas and florida but also the rhetoric across the right wing in general i think for a really long time the climate movement has just not seen or acknowledged how lgbtq rights intersect with climate and this feels like a moment where we really need to fucking fix that and fast. <laughs> I know that Definitely. you you have actually covered this a fair bit. So I'm curious to hear what your experience has been. Yeah, you know, I think it's important to firstly recognize that, you know, queer people at large are currently fighting for their ability to survive, right? And yeah. so it's hard to engage on climate issues when you're just worried about whether your human rights are are going to be stripped at any second, which mm-hmm. they actively are, right? Right. And it's in my coverage, you know, it's been really strange covering this because, you know, I'm gay, mm-hmm. I'm bisexual, and our team at Atmos, the magazine where I work, you know, we are a very, very gay team, like super gay. Yes. <laughs> if you follow our stories. It's a very gay crowd over there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I would imagine that's pretty clear. You know, our Instagram posts, like our magazine, we put Patagonia, a drag queen on one of our covers last year. Yeah. It does not. It's not a secret. And so, you know, I had initially covered this indigenous led effort to stop a lithium mine over in Nevada, Mm -hmm. which, you know, was meant to supply the electric vehicle industry. Um, My story on that activism came out back in October 2021. 
And in January, journalist J.L. Holzman, um, she's over at E&E News. She published a separate story on an organization called Deep Green Resistance, mm-hmm. which is essentially made up of TERFs, extreme radical feminists who are anti-trans as fuck, who do not uh, respect or believe in transness very much or like, you're not a woman. This is a woman's safe space. Anyway, some of the dudes I spoke to for my initial story ended up being tied to that group. And mm-hmm. that group was funding many of the indigenous-led efforts to stop that lithium mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was pretty awful to find out about it that way. You know, um, I was obviously disappointed myself for giving a platform to these assholes, but also really grateful to JL's reporting and that she discovered it in the first place. Um, and so once I realized that you know, my initial story had provided a platform to these people. And that to me already felt like a big part of the story that needed to be shared. I Mm -hmm. updated that initial piece and we wound up publishing a second story that I linked to in my initial story that really sort of got at the heart of why environmentalists need to care about trans rights, why trans rights are inherent to climate justice. You know, we published an Instagram post that said, there's no climate justice without trans rights. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And that was the, you know, the whole, the whole heart of the piece. And the reaction there was not, it was not what I expected, which I think really speaks a lot to just like climate people and this big gap mm. that exists about how people in the climate movement. And I think people on the left really at large feel about trans people. Yeah. And a, like, in, yeah. in what way were people like, oh, this is a distraction from real climate stuff or like. Um, it wasn't even that. People were just like saying, what does this have to do with carbon emissions? How does this connect to science? It was just this really big disconnect of, you know, how human rights for this specific group of people are something that we in the climate movement need to talk about, you know, a big part of the story was talking to indigenous people and sort of, you know, indigenous activists who are trying to decolonize the climate movement Mm -hmm. and who got into how colonialism, you know, imposed this binary worldview and imposed this gender binary on them. Right. Um, Two-spirit people used to be a big part of many indigenous and Native American cultures. Um, And two-spirit people, you know, that the meaning of that can vary depending on individual, but essentially it's a non-binary gender non-conforming person. Right. Um, who used to carry a lot of cultural significance um, and had important roles within many different indigenous cultures. And that person, that, that identity, you know, was erased from many cultures. And so it's been an effort to just like bring that back. Mm-hmm. And many indigenous activists see this as like a, the same worldview that's been imposed on them by the colonizers is also the worldview that has contributed to the climate crisis, has destroyed right. the lands. And so part right. of decolonizing the movement is also like bringing that back. Well, and in the case of Thacker Pass, which is this lithium mine, right. um, like there's a very clear line of like, oh, these people and their anti-trans agenda are the ones that are undermining climate activism. <laughs> so I keep seeing this happen in the climate space where people will try to make the connection between any sort of human rights and the climate crisis. And inevitably, there will be a couple of people who will say, like, what does this have to do with carbon emissions? What does this have to do with climate science? Why are you imposing, quote unquote, identity politics on climate? Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, dude, the actual thing that's happening is that people who are white supremacists, who are transphobes, who are misogynists, are trying to make climate part of the culture war. And I feel like even if 
you as a person are like, I don't relate to this or I don't really care about trans people or whatever, you should care that it's the nexus of fascism in this country right now. Trans people and queer people in general are totally being scapegoated in a very Nazi Germany adjacent way. Um, And it is spreading like fucking wildfire. It's crazy how fast it's been that it's like, yeah, all of a sudden you're seeing like the Proud Boys and the Liberation Front people and all of these groups are now specifically targeting drag shows and pride events and like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. And it's like, you know, queer people, we get this one month to just celebrate and, you know, celebrate the fact that we're queer, but also the fact that we're here, you know, I think people forget that there was a whole pandemic that affected you know, queer people and HIV. And it's a miracle for many of us to even feel that we exist. It's totally, people totally forget. I was, I was talking to someone about this the other day because like I'm, I'm almost 44 next on Saturday, I turned 44. So Ah! like when I was, thank you. When I was coming of age, it was like, terrifying to have sex. I don't think people understand this, that like, it's like you had to go get an AIDS test after every intimate encounter, every single one. Um, You went into every interaction worried that like you were literally taking your life in your hands. This is how scary it was, you know? And then, and then like you knew tons of young vibrant people who were dying a horrible death. Um, Yeah, I'm just like, it hasn't been that long, but I feel like people have really forgotten that history in in a troubling way. Yeah. I think that a lot of people had the had the privilege of not having to see any of that, the folks who were around back then. And so they choose to ignore it. Yeah. um, Unfortunately. Yeah. And it just it just bums me out that there's not more climate reporters paying attention to this community whose rights are being attacked who suffered disproportionately from things that will be impacted by climate change, right? Like homelessness. Mm -hmm. That's a major issue affecting trans youth in particular. And every time there's like a heat wave, a hurricane, flooding, wildfires, we know that the homeless are among the most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. They can't take cover. They can't stay away from the smoke. You know, they're literally passed out on the streets. Sometimes people just walk by them like it's a normal thing to see. It's it's really fucked up. And we know that climate change is going to make all these situations worse. Yet there aren't many climate people working on building awareness or solutions to these issues. There is this one story um, by Ezra David Romero mm-hmm. over at KQED. It was so well done, so well reported um, back in February that examined the way disaster planning excludes trans communities in particular. Mm. And his is the only piece in recent memory that I can recall that took that approach of looking at the queer community through this climate lens and examining you know, where those gaps are, what they need, the way that other environmental justice reporting looks at, you know, immigrants or other marginalized communities. Yeah. Yeah. They don't, queer people do not get that attention. Um, And it's really, really alarming, especially how folks on the right are just blatantly attacking trans folks in particular. I feel like there's this thing too, and I I know this came up, has come up in your reporting and, and I'm sure you've just witnessed it too, that the climate movement has not been welcoming to the queer community, really, you know, and so there's this way that people feel like there's a significant part of their identity that they have to check at the door when they're doing their climate work. And this like insistence that people sort of split themselves into different 
identities. Again, even if you can't relate or you don't know anyone who's trans or you're not part of the queer community or whatever, you should be concerned about the fact that we're not building the strongest movement if we're not being inclusive. Yeah. And it's bizarre because there's there are so many queer people in the climate movement. Yeah. I mean, there are so many of us. But I've heard this from folks, you know, I'm doing the story now for the print magazine that's coming out in the fall looking at uh, queer youth in Florida, um, queer youth climate activists in Florida. And, you know, I keep hearing from them just how they feel they have to separate these parts of themselves. Like when they're doing climate activism, they're not actively talking about their queerness. You know, there's this teenage girl I spoke to and she's like, I never told anyone from like my climate work that I was gay until, I, you know, I kissed my girlfriend at a rally. And I don't know, it just seemed like, it was something a little uncomfortable for her in a way mm. that it isn't in other spaces. And I think that's because environmental activism is often super like hilly and like very political and very policy oriented. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. there's this like need to be like suit and tie fresh and like, I don't know, I guess just very square in a way that queer people are just not, you know, like right. <laughs> right. there's nothing square about us. Um, yeah. But it's, it's, it shouldn't be that way. Um, and we're seeing those walls come down now, I think, with like BIPOC spaces, you know, like the yeah. climate movement being more more amenable and welcoming to non-white people. But I'm not seeing that effort um, come through on with queer people. There's like this one outdoor group that I know is like advocating pretty heavily um, for queer rights. The Oath, they've been doing a lot of just like oh, diversity yeah. stuff at large. Yeah, I've fun- seen them. I think yeah. A few of the founders, I'm pretty sure, are queer. So mm-hmm. I'm sure that helps. But it shouldn't just be like one group carrying the torch, you know, and like getting the work done. It's frustrating that we have that like we have to go group by group and convince the climate movement that it's a good <laughs> idea to like protect everybody's rights. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, come <laughs> yeah. on, man. I just talked to a researcher the other day who studies protests. She studies movements and protests. Right. And she's spent the last 20 years looking at what is and isn't effective. This is, uh, she's a sociologist, Dana Fisher, and she um, has done a bunch of studies recently that show that like, hands down, the most effective movements are intersectional movements. And that Mm. actually the climate movement is like well positioned to be intersectional. Like we already have a bunch of people who are willing to show up for both climate and social justice issues, you know? And I'm like leaning into those strengths. Like having a non-inclusive space is a weakness that can be easily exploited. Um, and, And that is never going to be a winning strategy. Like why wouldn't you want the biggest tent possible? And why wouldn't you want to like show up for all of these other related issues that like, I don't know, to me, I'm just like, we're all fighting for the same thing, which is like to re to address this problem that we were talking about earlier of like a small group of people having an outsized amount of power, you know, like, and that's the root of it for all this stuff, you know, truly. (laughs) And with queer rights in particular, I feel like there's so many tie-ins when you look at who's behind these transphobic bills or oftentimes the same people behind, Mm -hmm. you know, like bills stopping climate action, whether that's like, you know, a net metering bill in Florida or, um, you know, a bill trying to stop counties from, you know, banning oil and gas wells, whatever the hell it is. It's often the same people who are like, 
funding the politicians that are passing. That's absolutely right. And that has been true for a really long time. So like there was this um, this climate disinformation report that came out last week and they were um, showing it was from a group called the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. And they usually focus on right wing extremism and hate speech in general. Um, and they have been doing that for, I don't know, like 10, 15 years. And they hadn't really ever looked at the climate space before, but they started to because they started to see people who they know from other extremist spaces glomming on to a bunch of like anti-climate policy talking points. And so this report laid out like how these these people who consider themselves to be like frontline warriors in the culture war are starting to like add climate to the mix. And I saw immediately people in the climate movement kind of using that as a justification for being like, see, this is why we shouldn't dabble in identity politics. Like we should just keep it to science and policy. And I'm like, no, dude, wrong. Like the entire machine that you are fighting against, they have always combined these issues. The Koch brothers were fucking galvanized by Brown versus board. They were racist segregationists way before they were climate deniers, you know, and and they've always combined those things. And they're like those organizations, Heritage Foundation, Heartland Institute, the Cato Institute, the Bradley Foundation, Searle Foundation. I mean, there's all these family foundations, right? And they have all always combined anti-civil rights, racism, um, anti-union shit, They've been trying to dismantle public schools ever since they were desegregated and like anti-queer, like pro-religious family stuff. And they're all the same groups that do all of the anti-climate stuff. So like, I'm like, I don't know, in their minds, this is all like them fighting against control or against um, a multiracial uh, majority, uh, they, they, it's like an ideological fight. And to them, it's all always been the same battle. It's only actually on our side that we've always tried to separate these things. You know? Yeah. And it feels so backwards because if yeah. you want all the people on your side throwing down for you, you have to be willing to throw down for them too. Exactly. You know, consider all the ways queer people, trans youth are being attacked. Like it's hard to imagine them wanting to organize around climate change right now. Like they literally can't. That was something that came coming up in my interviews with folks. It's like, I want to do more for climate, but I have to focus right now on this don't say gay bill in Florida because my rights are literally at stake. Like if I want to start a family. fundamental rights. Yes. Yes. Like they're too busy trying to stay alive. And yet, Mm -hmm. you know, climate advocates want them to join the climate fight. Meanwhile, Mm -hmm. climate people don't even (laughs) respond to this war that is being waged on their existence. Not only do they Um, not respond, but they dismiss it as like some kind of a, uh, you know, distraction from the greater cause of climate. It's really offensive the way that some people talk about this. Like, of course, if you want a large and powerful movement, then you have to be a good ally too. I mean, you see it in the labor movement too, right? All of a sudden now unions are having... um, some real success. And I keep seeing climate people being kind of being like, how do we get in on that? And I'm like, well, you could have not been dicks to labor for the last 20 years, (laughs) you know, like, (sighs) yeah. Yeah. I hope that folks figure it out. I think that the more we talk about it, that's a big thing. I just don't think there's enough people talking about this and like making those connections and 
I'm really grateful that I work for a team that like is very dedicated to making those connections to readers. And like, that's definitely a big focus area for us. And so we just got to keep reminding folks that they're not doing enough and that they're fucking up so that hopefully they can. Yeah, I guess change, change their behavior and get with it. Cause it's scary. It's a scary time right now. And like climate is scary enough, but there are other things happening like right now that are just very direct and urgent um, in a way that I think climate still doesn't feel like for some people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's important that those that those fears and realities are, are being calmed, too. Definitely. Definitely. And I think like your chances of doing anything about climate under an authoritarian regime are pretty slim, especially doing the things about climate that like, you know, we would like to see things that are not, you know, out, out, out and out eco-fascism, then you need some kind of a functional democracy. You know, I hate the framing of like, first they came for this group and they're going to come for you next. Cause like, you know, we should all be able to care about everybody's rights in general without, without it relating to some like personal fear for our own rights. <laughs> but yeah, this is like definitely, you know, the canary in the coal mine here. Like, if you think that it's going to stop at trans rights, you're sorely mistaken. Mm-hmm. I think you said earlier, we, we need a functioning democracy if we're going to actually pass any yeah. climate policy. So same reason that, like, you know, we're like, OK, if you care about climate, you got to care about voter suppression. You know, you got to care about yep. like it's it really... another thing the climate movement does not pay enough attention to. I know. I know. <laughs> Speaking of showing up for people, Yesenia, how does a hurricane see? Oh, through the tie? Yes! With one eye! Wow! <laughs> With one eye, I you got, got it. it. Well, I I'm so proud of myself. It. That's very, very <laughs> impressive. Very impressive. But it was like it was a climate dad joke, so it was. It helped. It's what, <laughs> what okay. What is a tornado's favorite game? Twister? Yes! Oh my god. <laughs> This is unheard of. Unheard of. Amazing. Wow. I'm heating up. <laughs> Two, in Two in a row. Two in a row. So I saw someone tweeting recently, and I, I think it was Beth Sowen, who is with the Multi-Solving Institute. She said, we need to stop talking about the pandemic in the past tense and climate change in the future tense, which I loved. I was like, yes, very well put. Because uh, I don't know about you, Yusenia, but I feel like everyone I know has COVID right now. <laughs> I feel like everyone I know is getting or like coming off. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah same. It's, it's wild. I feel like I know more people who either have it right now or are just getting over it than I did at the so-called height of the pandemic, like before the vaccines came out. And yet I completely hear people talking about it like it's over and just kind of generally acting like it's completely over. And then on climate change, I feel like media here have gotten a little bit better about how the climate crisis can already be seen, but they mostly talk about it as like over there. You know, it's like people will mm. say, you, you can already see the impacts of the climate crisis in the global South, but somehow have missed that it's showing up right here in the U.S. in a pretty major way. 
all of a sudden. I think the most recent example is the fact that the Colorado River is vanishing. I actually <laughs> haven't been keeping up with this too much. So yeah. I, I am very, I don't very blame alarmed you. to hear this. I don't blame you because A, the national media really hasn't been covering it. And B, I think if you're because of that, if you're outside of the West, like you really don't get that much information on it because it's kind of like, I don't know, just sort of seen as this like Western water issue over here. But it's a big fucking deal. Um, the Colorado River supplies water to seven states. Those states are California, Colorado, Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming. It also supplies water to parts of northern Mexico. So there's this like wild deal that we've had in place for a really long time between the U.S. and Mexico where we send water back and forth um, mm all from the Colorado River. So you have a ton of people on both sides now who are like, we're not getting enough water, right? Because these agreements were all inked way before climate change was a thing in a completely different context. There were fewer farms, there were fewer people, there were, you know, not as dense cities, and we had more water. So now we're into a long-standing drought in the West. In California, they're saying it's the worst drought in 1,200 years. All of these major lakes are at like 25% capacity and less. And a federal official said this week that these states that depend on the Colorado River for water will need to cut their water use by between two and four million acre feet next year to avoid outright catastrophe. So um, just to put that in context, because I don't I don't I don't know anything about acre feet of water. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, same. I've <laughs> never heard do. this phrase before. Never, yeah, I'm like, what does that mean? Okay, so this is at the high end. So in the four million acre feet realm, this is about eight times what Los Angeles consumes from all sources of water in a year. So we would have to cut water usage by eight times of what LA uses in a year. That's a fuck ton of water right there. That um, is a tremendous amount of water. And don't aren't there some tribes that also rely on the Colorado River for yes, water? Yes, there are several tribes that rely on the Colorado <laughs> River for water. Plus, like I mentioned, people in Mexico. In fact, actually, the last time Mexico was supposed to send water to the U.S., there was a major protest of farmers who actually shut down the dam for a day <laughs> because oh, yeah because they were just like no we can't be you know we can't keep doing this yeah and when I hear that they want to cut that much water usage mm -hmm. I just wonder like who's actually gonna have to cut and who's gonna get to keep you know business as usual that's right um and that's why I brought up the tribes because I know that they've been fighting for so long just to get even like basic water rights. yeah yeah mm -hmm. just like rights over the river and I just am so curious how this is going to affect them. Um, yeah. That's a lot of water to, to cut down by. It's a lot of water. And the Imperial Valley Irrigation District has a ton of control over quite a bit of that water. So this is the agricultural district in Central Valley, California. Patch mm. of land that's like not great soil, didn't have any of its own water, was completely manufactured. <laughs> and now those folks have a ton of control over water in the state and they control over 3 million acre feet of water. And so 
they have to decide, they get to decide if they're going to sell any of that water to any of the other constituencies that need water, which includes tribes, cities, counties. It's literally this five-person board that can be like, nah, we want to keep it. So is it like a bidding war, though, or is it? Like how so basically that- like the there's all of these agreements in place that govern who gets what portion of Colorado River water. And you have all of these different groups who have different reasons for why they want the water. Right. And the cities will often argue, well, you know, we're talking about basic drinking water. So that trumps farming water. And the farmers will say, well, food is a basic necessity, too. And they get into this whole back and forth. Do those, do those farm workers even get any water themselves? Nope. Good question, because no, they don't. All of the workers who keep those farms going have to buy bottled water. There's no drinking water in those communities. It's, it's gross. I feel like, again, wow, there's so much going on here. And like the only outlet I see covering it regularly really is the Los Angeles Times. And Sammy Roth there has been doing a great job. And ProPublica is doing some stuff on this as well. I do want to also highly recommend a web series on YouTube called El Tema. Have you seen this? It's so good. I have not. No, I don't really do YouTube. (laughs) I don't either. Like I stay away from it because I feel like it's a cesspool of like, right-wing wackos. But Gael Garcia Bernal did this series with a a couple of different groups in Mexico looking at how climate change is showing up in different regions of Mexico. It's really well done. It's like a five-part series. They actually made a huge effort to make it like not center him. They're like, you know, it's kind of good to have this famous person involved, but it can also be a liability. So we don't want it to be too focused on him. But they have an episode, the first episode actually is about this whole water deal between Mexico and the U.S. And it gets into this strike where the the people there shut down the dam for a couple days when they were supposed to be sending water to the U.S. Um, So love a strike. I love a strike. Yeah, me too. I was like, yeah, shut down that dam. Uh, um. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And it's wild because we see this happening in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And then up in Montana, they're having the opposite problem, right? Yeah. Too much water, like unexpected, giant volumes of rain that caused massive flooding in Yellowstone. Have you seen the footage? It's pretty terrifying. It is terrifying. And it's this, it's this combination issue of like the rain and the thun- like the thunderstorms but then also because of the higher than usual temperatures all the snow and ice pack melted at the same time so you had like oh god a double whammy um yes which there again it's like snow melt. yeah people don't understand that like because i don't know it's like when it, i live in a place where it snows right and whenever it snows people are like oh good that's good for the snowpack but it's like yeah but only if it stays snow and ice for a long enough time, you know, because if it all melts at once, then like then you waste a bunch of water because you end up with floods and runoff and all this other stuff. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And it feels like that's increasingly becoming a problem now in the plains where they get like these really severe snowstorms and um, springtime rolls around and it's here too soon. Right. Like it just melts so quickly before the ground can even Mm-hmm. take in the water that's coming through yeah um and with yellowstone it's it's it, it really hit close to home here because we were planning on sending a photographer there with atmos 
for the next print issue and it's been affecting our ability to like figure out what's happening now i know oh, the wow. park's closed i think and yeah it is closed it's still closed i think they're opening in a few days i don't know but that's the other thing too is like yellowstone right okay it's pretty remote there's a couple of little towns around there and like those towns the the businesses and the people who live in those towns they make all their money for the year mm-hmm. in the summer um so so being shut down for like you know two weeks to a month in the summer is like devastating for that community um and there again then you get into like oh well this is you know this is like a problem for tourism-based economies that are going to be deeply impacted more and more as climate change continues to march forward um that's right same with like the snow um resorts and stuff too it's like they've actually calculated i think there was i've seen a couple reports from the outdoor industry about like the economic impact of climate change for for that industry and it's pretty crazy it's like you know i'm like wow why can't why can't that economic problem be a thing that um that we talk about when we're talking about like yeah. the economy and climate change you know I'm in yeah. you know I'm in New York and I went I went to school upstate in Plattsburgh mm-hmm. which is like the farthest north you can get before you hit Canada mm. and even when I was going to school like it was really normal for folks to get out to the mountains for snowboarding and ski season in the winter and now all of my friends who are into snow sports, no, I'm not one of them. I don't like snow. Uh-huh. <laughs> but all of my friends who would always go snowboarding every season with their seasonal passes, like it's a joke now to them to go snowboarding in New York because right. the snow just doesn't stick. Like they always go to Vermont or they go even farther or they go out to like Colorado, which now seems like that's not even much of an option the way it used to be because right. climate change is also affecting the snow cover there. Right. Um, yeah, it's it's it does definitely doesn't get enough attention. Um, and when we see these events, it's like there's, you know, luckily no one was hurt with Yellowstone. Yeah. No one was seriously hurt. But there's also the elements of, you know, the ecosystem and the wildlife, the water. Like, mm-hmm. how is that going to be affected by all this? Yeah. Um, and because I feel we often just think about human impact. I think you and Mary talked about this on a recent episode, just like how we like overcompensated, overcorrected, yes. trying to like focus on people and the environmental movement <laughs> Yeah, that we just completely stop thinking about. Like there are all these other organisms and, you know, beings right. who also deserve attention and concern. Um, Our fellow members of the ecosystem. Yeah. The, I really, I dislike extremely this, this like the, the sort of like fuck nature thread in the climate movement that emerged. I'm like, no, 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 that's not what we're talking about. I mean, I will and I will admit, like when I first started getting into climate, when I was like in college, that was sort of my ethos, too. It was like, we fuck the polar bears. Like, what about people? You know, that was in a a landscape where people were not talking about people at all. Right. 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 And now it's like, okay, we got we can't forget our like four legged and our finned kin. And it's also there are a lot of cultures where animals and indigenous cultures in particular animals are not treated separately like they very much are relatives yeah exactly i think it was hunter polly who's a um he's a reporter in montana who was tweeting about this and he said you know that actually there were um government officials who came out immediately saying you know don't use this as an excuse to talk about climate and then there were um and then he, he he was pointing out that like a bunch of them just so happened to be affiliated with various 
Coke-funded organizations in the States. So I'm like, yeah, of, of course, course, of course. But in <laughs> so. this case in particular, I'm like, there's actually like a very clear economic impact to exactly the kinds of like white small towns that like those organizations, you know, have made their poster children. To me, it was interesting because I'm just like, okay, now it's starting to actually impact those folks too, you know, um, how are you going to continue to spin this story? I don't think I'm as much of a cynic <laughs> as you and Mary are. I'm like, I have to hold on to this little piece of hope that there are going to be enough folks on the right who just like have their self-interests yeah, and will let their self-interest like drive their belief in climate and support yeah. for climate policy, even if they're still racist at the end and they're still just like, right. want to believe that, you know, immigrants said this at least Hopefully they will stop voting for people who do not give a fuck about climate change. Right. Because like, it is it starting it has to happen <laughs> to really impact their livelihoods. Yeah. I mean, that actually like that reminds me of um, I, I did a story a long time ago um, on crab fishermen on the West Coast who ended up suing the oil companies over climate change. And um, I was really struck by the fact that there were a number of people in this group who are hardcore climate deniers still as named plaintiffs against the oil companies in a climate case. And I was like, how did that happen? And they, they, so I asked them, I was like, how, you know, how does this all come together for you? And they were like, well, we were shown documentation of oil companies getting um, patents for like offshore platforms that could withstand sea level rise or um, tankers that could navigate a melting Arctic. And they were upset that oil companies were doing all these things to make their companies resilient to climate change. And they were telling everybody else not to worry about it. And so then they were like, for us, they're like, it doesn't matter what's causing it. The fact that is that they knew it was coming and they were preparing for it and they told us not to, and that's not fair. And I was like, that is so interesting. <laughs> you know, that there there was this like ideological loophole that they found to be able to like do something about climate without like rejecting their sort of group social identity. And and that did that does actually make me feel somewhat more hopeful about where people will will get to on on climate as we start to see more of these extreme weather events. Because I think most people are like, this is weird. This is not what I'm used to. You know, um, they can see it. And I, and I feel like increasingly the people who are seeing it are no longer just frontline vulnerable communities the way that historically I think has been where the impact has been felt the most, mm -hmm. right? Like folks who can't rebuild after a hurricane right. or, you know, folks who can't um, find a new home after a wildfire. Um, now it's affecting, like you said, you know, fishermen, ranchers, mm -hmm. these farmers out west, the river, these tourism folks at our national parks. Like, right, right. It's now affecting folks who are not, quote unquote, the most vulnerable. And I just hope that they're wise enough to realize how their political choices contribute to this. And that's that's, I think, where the biggest challenge is going to be, because the, the misinformation machine is just so strong. Yeah. Um, yeah. And unless people because, you know, voting, obviously, it's like I don't want to be the person who's like, you have to vote because we all know voting is like a problem in and of itself. With right. The way that our system is set up. Right. But right. If we keep having people vote for the wrong people, though, like these right wing assholes, then. Yeah. Nothing's going to ever change. It's just impossible. Yeah. <laughs> we can't pass climate policy if we keep having climate deniers in office. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, I do think that the media 
coverage is always a component of this as well. So I, I want to like give a shout out to CNN of all places. I feel like they're starting to really do a good job on climate coverage. You know why? Because they hired Rachel Ramirez. Shout say, out to Rachel. I was going to say, is it, is it just all down to Rachel Ramirez? I'm going to say yes. I I will say it is all because of Rachel Ramirez. <laughs> yeah, seriously, there is a distinct correlation between her being higher there and their climate coverage improving dramatically. So, yes. Shout um, out to you, Rachel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they did this story that was called A Day of Extreme Weather Across the U.S. where they just showed like it, how it was happening in all of these places in the U.S. at the same time. And I thought it was it was so compelling because it was like they showed the floods in Montana. They showed severe storms across the Midwest, um, which left 620,000 people without power in Whoa. the Ohio River Valley. Yeah. Um, I didn't even see that. I did not see that news. I've I know. I offline like last week. Yeah. Well, good for you. I mean, it's good to be offline <laughs> <laughs> but then I miss this. I miss stuff like this. Holy shit. I know. And then there were uh, more than 125 million people. So that's a third of the U.S. population. More than a third, actually, um, were dealing with potentially dangerous heat. So record temperatures in Asheville, North Carolina, St. Louis, Nashville, even in Nebraska, where um, apparently the town of North Platte hit a record 108 degrees. So, I mean, this massive heat dome was covering, like, enormous parts of the country um, at the same time that you had, you know, yeah, like drought in the West and floods in Montana. I actually experienced this. You did? I was down in Nashville. I, I was in Nashville when this was happening, and everyone kept talking about, just how insane the weekend was going to be. They're like, make sure that you're ready for this weekend. It's going to be, you know, record heat. And I was like, interesting. Wow. And I, just, I really wanted to ask them, do you think climate change has, is to blame? But I wasn't sure people's politics down there. And I was like, I'm too brown to be like, <laughs> I don't want to get people. shot here. Yes. <laughs> yes. But it was it was it was very, very intense. The kind of heat that was I mean, you're just standing there. and You're just like covered in sweat. Yeah. It's like a humid kind of heat, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I did not miss this news. Yeah. Yeah. And then only two days after the heat wave closed schools in Michigan, you had thunderstorms and floods there, which forced the closure of Abbott's formula factories. So I was just like, oh, my God, the compounding crises are just insane because, you know, this is like two weeks after they reopened. It started, you know, the formula shortage is starting to very slightly ease. And then you have an extreme weather event shutting them down again. Um, So, like, these are the kinds of things, too, that I'm like, yeah, like these things are not separate they're going these like climate is is going to be exacerbating lots of other problems Um, it's going to affect literally everything and i'm really glad you brought up the the formula shortage because when the shortage was on i mean as it was happening like earlier on i remember flagging to our team here i was just like some there is a climate story here like there is some way that we can cover this and talk about just in general, the way the supply chain is going to be affected in the future. And it just feels so ironic that, you know, not even a week later, perhaps after I I, I posed that question to the team, that it's like, actually, here's a real way that now climate change is affecting this ongoing crisis. Um, yeah. It just feels like a fucked up comedy or something. Yeah, totally. It feels like Murphy's Law, in effect, Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. But Yesenia, have you heard of Cole's Law? Cole's Law? Yes. 
<laughs> I feel like I'm missing something here. It's thinly sliced cabbage. <laughs> Wait, what? Coleslaw. 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 Uh, that's another dad joke. That's another dad joke. Okay. Uh, why can't you trust an atom? Um, because, because I have no idea. Beca- <laughs> I don't know why. Because they make up everything. Boom. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> I like that one. I get that one. I did not get the coleslaw one. <laughs> the first time I read it too, I was like, what? I don't get it. Oh, I get it. It's coleslaw. <laughs> We're going to move on to... I think maybe one of my favorite segments here at Hot Take, which is the surprise me segment. So Yesenia, what uh, what story have you got for me today? What have you been reading? Surprise. So I have some really happy news, oh. some good pop culture news nice. for you, Amy. I love it. I don't know. If, I don't know if you heard. But Queen B is about to drop a new album. <gasps> and actually, she's dropping a single tonight at midnight. Wow. Amazing. I did not hear. And that is some very good news. I like it. Beyonce's music is always just superb. So I'm very, very, very hype about this. If you need to pick me up from all the bad news. Now you have one. That's amazing. I was like, I was actually looking for like good news to bring to this table. <laughs> I was like hoping that you had found some and you did. Amazing. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I do think that Beyonce is like a climate person. I've been like dreaming of the day one day she'll give me an interview for Atmos or something. Oh God, she so does amazing. like hurricane work. Yeah. Her Black is King album for Lion King had all these like nature elements. Lemonade did too. Mm-hmm. I very, I really do think that she's like, an undercover climate activist. Like, she has to care about this shit. She's from Texas. I was going to say, isn't she from Texas? And also... She's from Houston, yo. Like, she has to. And she has kids. Come on. She's got to be. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, that is tremendous good news and a nice surprise. I, on the other hand, have brought you something to bitch about. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Lay it on me. Lay it on me. <laughs> Which is, it's so funny because last time we did this segment, Mary brought me an Ezra Klein co- uh, column, and now I'm bringing you one. Which is this op-ed column that he wrote. I think it was today. Oh my um, god! I think I saw it on my Twitter feed, but I didn't read it yet. Yeah, it's an opinion piece, and it's entitled "This is a weirder moment than you think," and then it's all about like futurism and trying to predict like the future of the U.S. and particularly the future of the U.S. political system and like, you know, whether all of these like big destabilizing events will actually happen or not. And he does not mention climate change at all in this column, but he does mention, do you want to take a guess? Aliens. Yes, aliens. Fucking aliens. I, 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 saw, I saw your tweet. I'm a cheater. I, I didn't like come up with this. I saw you tweeting about it. That's what I saw. I saw your tweet being like aliens but not climate change ah it kills me yo to be real though aliens are definitely coming um i am very interested in the creeping coverage of ufos like i don't think i mean i do think that like the the part where he talks about this is something that people should be aware of which is that like we have actually been having some congressional hearings about ufo sightings and i'm not joking (laughs) 
I know this because I'm very into alien news, actually. I find it really fascinating. <laughs> my husband is, so I catch in on it. Like every once in a while, I'll just like walk past him and I'm like, is this is this like another, uh, is this an alien investigation? But he does, he like, it, it takes it very seriously. He's like listening to all of the, you know, naval experts and stuff on it too. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. pretty wild. The Navy sees some shit. I know. I know. Yeah. The House Intelligence Committee's Subcommittee on Counterterrorism, Counterintelligence and Counterproliferation held a hearing in May about unidentified aerial phenomena. (laughs) That's a thing that happened. Um, So, you know, I'm glad that he mentioned the aliens. I just think it's weird that he didn't mention. But he really he really doesn't mention climate change. No, no. He mentions sentient A.I., and again, a valid thing to be like freaked out and worried about, you know, um, he mentions the January 6th hearings and the fact that, you know, he's kind of always pointed to um, Watergate and the fact that Al Gore conceded the 2000 election, even though there was a lot of like unknowns at the time um, as as sort of proof points of like the stability and strength of American democracy. And and he was kind of like, I don't think either of those things would go that way now, <laughs> you know, which I agree. But yes, amidst all of this talk of, and he, he actually talks about like the weaponization of disinformation and then, yeah, does not talk about. What the heck? Didn't he, climate. his last column, wasn't that the one that y'all talked about? about yeah, climate kids and kids. And climate change? Yep, exactly. Yeah, Come it's on, weird. I feel, I feel like he gets a lot of like, in my opinion, unearned, cred for being like good on climate um i'm not seeing it come on ezra yeah i've never thought of him as a climate person but i do often talking about him that way and i'm just like isn't he he's the vox guy right yeah yeah he is (laughs) that's how i think of him the vox guy (laughs) he's the vox guy yeah yeah he is exactly yeah so um yeah unfortunate i would say very an, an unfortunate missed opportunity, especially because, like, I don't know. I'm like, OK, sure, you're cramming a lot in here. But like even just one line, a throwaway reference. Come on, something. But no, no. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think that's also on his editors, though. Right. Like you have an editor. Yes. And at the time, the editing process is so intensive. Do yeah. you think at some point editor would have been like, hey, we should just at least throw in a line here and just acknowledge climate change because, yeah. you know, that's also a giant threat that humanity actually faces that we know, not these like. And it's very destabilizing, um, you know, like, well, and also, but I thought that about his his kids column, too. I was like, how did no editor clock the fact that only white people were interviewed for this column about reproduction and climate? Like, really? Come on, man. The times, though. It's the Times. I know. Do better, New York Times. Do better. Um, <laughs> Yesenia, why do plants hate math? Because of division. Oh, I like no, that. But no, it's because it know. gives them square roots. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that's I like, good. I like your version better. It sows division. <laughs> <laughs> So good. Oh man, square root is cute. It's oh, cute. I love these stat jokes. It's cute. It's cute. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming today. I appreciate it. And it was great talking to you. And we'll be sure to link to Atmos in the show notes and all of the great stuff that you've been doing over there too. We appreciate you. 
Thank you, Amy. Next time, hopefully, uh, I can be here with you and Mary. Yes, we'll have you on with the with we so missed you, the Mary. three of us. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Bye, Thank Mary. you so much, and uh, listeners, we'll see you next week. Hot Take is a Crooked Media production. It's produced by Ray Pang and mixed and edited by Jules Bradley. Our music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thamali Kodakara is our consulting producer. And our executive producers are Mary Anais Hegler, Michael Martinez, and me, Amy Westervelt. Special thanks to Sandy Gerard, Ari Schwartz, Kyle Seglin, and Charlotte Landis for production support and to Amelia Montooth for digital support. You can follow the show on Twitter at Real Hot Take, sign up for our newsletter at hottakepod.com, and subscribe to Crooked Media's video channel at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little bit more about you to make that possible. So please take a minute to go to podsurvey.com slash hot dash take and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Stop skipping them. We need them. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash hot, H-O-T dash take, T-A-K-E. Thanks for your help.